This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I'm really excited for today's guest, a friend to not just myself, but the Travis Mannion Foundation does so much to help and work with the veterans in our community. Uh, Can't thank him enough for the time he gives with his incredibly busy schedule. Jocko, welcome to The Resilient Life. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. So um, getting started, I want to talk to you a little bit about your, I think the way that people recognize you. And um, if you follow Jocko on social media platforms, you know, kind of the most recognizable thing about you is you wake up at 4.30 in the morning. And that's, that's your thing. You wake up, you work out, you get your day started. I had um, someone on here, uh, a guest on the podcast very early on, uh, the CEO of Casper, which is a mattress company. And they consider themselves not a mattress company, but a sleep company. And, and they're all about how there isn't enough importance on sleep to your health. And I was thinking about you when I was interviewing him. I'm like, you know, if I ever am able to have Jocko on the podcast, I want to talk to him about this idea that, you know, and I get conceptually, you know, you're getting up at 4.30, you're up before everyone else, you're getting done what you have to get done. But what factor does that play when they're saying, listen, in, in order to have optimal health, you need eight hours of sleep a night. You need to make sure that that you are getting sleep because that's as important as your physical health. That's important as what you put in your body. And so for me, that kind of goes against this idea of waking up at 4.30. And, you know, backtracking, I think I've seen, like, you don't go to bed that early. You're not going to bed early enough that you're putting in the prescribed amount of sleep time. So I just, I want to dive into that a little and see, you know, your thoughts on that. And, and the concept of sleep as an important health factor. Yeah, well, um, I agree. I think, th- I believe that sleep is a very important health factor. And I think that people should sleep as much as they need. And um, I think there's also a genetic component to it that some people don't need as much sleep as other people. I can't sleep eight hours, even if I wanted to. Um, so to me, it's just, you know, I, I just get up early, try and get stuff done. But I, I've, I, you know, I, I wrote a book called Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. And pe- when people get kind of uh, hypersensitive about sleep, I just tell them to go read what I wrote in the book, which is like, hey, everyone needs sleep. Sleep is good for you. Sleep as much as you can. I will say, try and get up at a consistent time every day. I think that's very helpful if you try and get up at a consistent time every day. But I'm not, I'm not, I don't encourage people to not sleep. That's, that doesn't seem like a good move. It's, I don't think it's very healthy. Um, I also don't encourage people to sleep in because (laughs) if you spend a bunch of your time sleeping, people are like, Oh, you'll live longer. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be alive longer, but I slept the whole time. So, (laughs) Uh, No, get sleep. I have nothing against sleep. Get all the sleep you can. Um, The reason I know I'm 
I know there's genetic component to it. My oldest daughter also doesn't sleep very much when I, when she was in high school, I would go to bed at like 11 o'clock at night and she would be up studying. And then I wake up at four 30 and she'd be up studying. So she doesn't need very much sleep. My next daughter, she doesn't get out of bed until there's some kind of an emergency happening. So, you know, it's just, um, different, different people have a little different needs, but yeah, it seems to be healthy to sleep. So if you need sleep, get it. I like that too. I think, you know, getting up at a consistent time, whether it's four 30 or seven 30 or nine o'clock, just making sure that you're getting up and starting your day. So that, that makes, that makes sense. Um, you talk a lot about, well, you wrote a book, uh, discipline equals freedom, your field manual, extreme ownership with our friend Leif Babin. And, you know, you were actually talking to some of our veterans last year going through our Spartan leadership program. And you were talking about, someone asked about motivation. And I'm sure you've said this about a thousand times before, but when you were talking about it, uh, it was the first time I heard it. It was the first time I heard you say it. And you said, motivation is a fleeting emotion. It, it comes and goes. And I was the person that was like, God, I just can't get myself motivated today. And, you know, there, I, I would ebb and flow with everything, right? Like personally, professionally, um, working out, not working out. And I would just be like, God, I wish there was a way that I could stay consistently motivated. And it was like a light switch for me when you said like, it's not, you know, you, you just have to be disciplined because you're never going to be motivated all the time. And it was, a, it was a huge wake up call for me. I wrote it down. I wrote it down on a piece of scrap paper. I posted it the next day on social media. I was like, you know, maybe you've heard this before. I never have. And it, it opened my eyes so much to this idea of discipline and what that means. And you know, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the idea of discipline because it's very different than motivation. And, and discipline comes when, you know, I'm saying, oh, I'm just not motivated to get out of bed today. And I, I just don't have it in me. Like, how do you take that idea of discipline? And, you know, you and I are different. You're a retired Lieutenant commander in the Navy. You have done very physical things over the course of your life, you were taught discipline, right? So I look at myself and I wonder, how do I take that component, that idea of discipline? And I can sit here with you today and say, I understand it 100%. I get it. But how do I apply that when I'm feeling like shit, when I've, you know, I've been up late because of work, when my kids are driving me crazy? Like, how do I tap into that inner discipline and say, no matter what, you know, it, it's, it's easier said than done. I mean, and I think even, probably even for you, right. But like, how do you get to that place that you just don't come out of it? Yeah. There's a bunch of little things that I think about when you ask a question like that. And one of them is like, don't negotiate with weakness because you'll lose, you know, you can, you can rationalize anything in your head to make yourself, give yourself an excuse on, well, you know, I was up kind of late last night and I'm not feeling great. And the kids, I should pay attention to the kids. And I also need to do this other paperwork. And I've also got this other thing going on. So if I skip this workout, my body needs rest. By the way, sleep is important. I should probably sleep in today. You can rationalize anything with yourself in your own head. So if you start to negotiate what you're going to do, you'll lose that negotiation every single time and the weakness will win. And, and so you just, um, 
the other thing I'll say is like, don't think about it. You know, people like, oh, what do you think about when you wake up in the morning? Nothing. I don't think about anything. The alarm clock goes up, off, I get up and I go. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. I don't, I don't have any thought process because if I did start thinking about it, I'd start rationalizing and thinking about a bunch of reasons why maybe I, maybe today's the day that I need off. In fact, I have a rule. I don't take today off. If I really feel tired, I'll say, okay, if I still feel tired tomorrow, I'll take the day off, but still got to go get it today. And normally the next day you don't need another day off. So yeah, motivation's just a, just a unemotion. And it's just like being happy or sad. It comes and goes. And if you count on that, you're going to, you're going to fail. So don't count on emotion. Don't count on motivation. Just count on discipline. Go do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I guess I counted on motivation for too long and, uh, you know, it's gotten the best of me because I, there, I think like everyone, you know, there's times and we're, you know, heading into the new year, you've got this, you know, you look at people like right now, everybody's saying, how is this year going to be different? Right? Like, what am I going to do? And I think a lot of motivation comes at the end or the beginning of a year, right? It's like, all right, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do this. And, um, you know, you talk about extreme ownership, the concept of ownership. You wrote a whole book on it. The book is fantastic. And, you know, as, as you move in, as we move into the new year, people are setting new year's resolutions, which I never set a new year's resolution. Um, it's not something that I found many years ago that setting a new year's resolution for me was like, it, it didn't work. It was just what is, what, what am I going to say I'm going to do that I'm going to fail at in two months? You know, I'm that classic person that just sets that resolution and then doesn't stick to it. So I don't set resolutions anymore, but why do you think owning who you are, you know, the changes, improvements you want to see, even in your defeats is important. Well, if you don't take ownership of things that have gone wrong, then there's nothing you can do to fix them. So if you say, well, you know, I didn't get that job because the person that interviewed me didn't like me. Okay, well then what are you gonna change for your next interview? Nothing, because it's not your fault. So why would I change anything? I'm just gonna go do what I did and the, the next person hopefully will like me and then I'll, pro then I'll get hired. So you don't change anything. If your health is in a good position and you say, well, you know, it's cause my job, I was working so much and therefore I got out of shape. Okay, well, what are you gonna change? That's not under your control. That's your, cause your job is so horrible. If you're having trouble with, you know, one of your employees and you're like, oh, well, that's cause my employee isn't, is dumb and is not in the game. Okay. Well, what are you going to change then? Nothing. So why are they going to change? So when you have something that's wrong, some issue, and you just point the finger at somebody else, or you blame someone else, or you blame something else, you don't change anything. You don't make any adjustments. So therefore nothing is going to change in your life. Whereas if you take ownership of everything and now you say, oh, I didn't get the job. Well, what did I do? What can I do better? What, how can I square away my resume? How can I prepare for those questions better? What did I, what answers did I give that weren't solid? Cool. Then you do a, you get one of your friends to role play with you and you start going through all the tough questions that you could get. You clean up your resume, you take another class and whatever, whatever subject is going to help you get that next job and you make changes and you get, you get hired. Or if you say, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm unhealthy because my job is, you know, I have to work a lot. Okay, well, here's what I can do. I waste two hours a day 
looking at social media or watching television. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to make changes. Okay, cool. Now I start working out during that time. And now I actually get in shape or my employees not in the game. Okay. What am I doing wrong? How can I get into my employee's head to get them more in the game? Oh, I got an idea. How about I give them some ownership? How about I talk to them about how they come up with the next plan for this task that we've got or this project that we've got. And then they feel like they've got some ownership. They feel like they've got some control over their own destiny and they step up and they start to change it. So you can find solutions to these things, but you can only find solutions if you take ownership of the problem. Do you think that ownership, this idea of ownership, uh, you know, when I look at it and I will say, you know, you, you waited a little bit when everything happened with Afghanistan. Um, I was waiting for like, what's Jocko going to say, you know, with everything going on here, I was, I was waiting for your, your thoughts on it. And, and you bring out your thoughts in this really cool monologue. And you're, you're talking as if you are, you know, the president, you're owning like what has happened. This is what I would say if I were in this situation. And I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. And I thought that in looking at it, you've never, ever, ever in the history seen someone, a, a, a elected official come out and take the kind of ownership you took in that video. And then I started to think more about this idea of like, I don't know if we as a society would even know how to react to somebody, to a politician taking ownership for something because they're, they just, all they do is pass the blame and pass the buck. Like that's what they're known for, right? And so um, I, I, I dealt with it actually recently. I'm a, I'm a township supervisor. Um, so our, our town operates with a board of five supervisors. One of my supervisors did something um, that she shouldn't have done. Uh, she, she, she did something that she knew was wrong. Um, she called me before the meeting because there was a ton of people that were going to be showing up to the meeting to publicly call on her to resign. And she said, listen, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I did what was right. It was, it was around a school board meeting. Uh, she actually was able to go into the, our school district and put some propaganda through like the pony mail system. So every teacher in our school district got her like propaganda and whether or not I agreed with what she, like her thoughts, like what she did was wrong. It was ethically wrong. And so I said to her, you know, you need to show up tonight and you need to take accountability for what you did. And, um, and she said, well, do you have any other advice? I'm like, there is no other advice. Go, go take accountability for what you did. You know that there was a, a ton of people that are going to be showing up tonight. And she got up behind the dais. We're all sitting there. There's 50 people that showed up to get behind the mic and, you know, give their thoughts on the, everything she did. And she sat there and afterwards she said, well, I did what I thought needed to be done. You guys don't know the full story. And I, I mean, my jaw just dropped and I'm like, is she kidding me? Like, and, and after the, and, and it's continued. I mean, every day we're getting more things for people to calling on her to resign. My, my inbox is full. And I said, I can't, I talked to her afterwards. I said, I can't defend you because you're, it's not even about what you did now. It's about your, your, how you're acting in the aftermath of it. Like it's indefensible. I sat there on the phone and told you, take accountability for your actions. And you sat there and said, I, I you don't, you guys don't know the full story. Like it was, you know, you don't know the full story. And it's just so indicative of 
our political system, our politicians, nobody takes accountability. Nobody takes ownership. And I think that that's why there's so much distrust with our elected officials. And, you know, I looked at that and I was like, this, this video, while I, I agree with everything Jocko's saying, it's almost taboo because you would never hear something like this. And so, you know, when you look ultimately at what's happening in the world today, when you look at our elected officials, you know, if you, if you could name one thing that's missing, it's ownership. It's on, on both sides, on both sides, because there's a lot of ownership to be had. And you think of how much better things would function, but everybody's worried about that next check they're not going to get if they take ownership for something or that next election that's two years around if they're running for Congress. I mean, it's just, um, it's frustrating. And uh, I appreciate you kind of taking that stand, going out there and saying, this is what I would do if, if I were in this position. Yeah, and uh, I mean, clearly the, the feedback I got on that video was everyone said exactly what you said. Hey, it was really refreshing to see. I wish we had someone that would act like that. Wish we had any politician that would act like that. So it's part of it is uh, a majority of it. What stops people from taking ownership is their own ego. And sure that, and then you play on top of that, the fear of, well, this will hurt me politically. It'll hurt my image. It'll hurt my party. And th so they think that, but the opposite is actually true. The opposite is, is true. You know, if you have an employee that comes to you and, and lies, or, you know, they failed to meet a project timeline and you say, Hey, what happened with that? And they said, well, you know, the contractors didn't, the contractors didn't get done their part and the, and the supplies didn't show up on time. That's why, that's why the project didn't get done. They're just pointing the finger and you go, okay, well, how do we fix those things? But you don't trust that person. Your trust doesn't go up with them. Your respect doesn't go up to them, up for them. But if they say, you know, if I say, hey, Ryan, what happened with this project? Why is this project late? And you say, hey, listen, first of all, I didn't, I didn't play close enough monitor to the contractors that were working and I let them fall behind. That's my fault. Next time I'm going to track them closely to make sure they're, they're getting their stuff done. And then also I didn't order the supplies early enough. So we had supplies show up late. That'll never happen again. Um, I've already ordered all the, all the materials for the next projects we have. It won't happen again. I'm sorry. This is my fault. And I won't let it happen again. What do I think of you? I go, oh, great. Now I'm going to put you in charge of more projects because I trust you more, but to the ego hit, that it causes to say, hey, I was wrong. This is my fault. No one likes to do that. And then people's misguided misconception of how you appear when you make excuses and when you cast blame. People think that no one sees it. People think that when you, when, when you, when you say, hey, it wasn't my fault, it was Ryan's fault. People think, oh, oh, in my own mind, I think, see, now everyone thinks it's Ryan. No, I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one that's in charge. It's not Ryan's fault. So yeah, it's, uh, it's very sad. It's, it's kind of crazy that people don't take ownership because it is, it is the best way to get problems solved. It's the best way to earn back the trust of people that are disappointed in what happened It disappointed in you as an individual, the best way to get owner, get, get respect back is to tell them the truth, take ownership and get the problem solved. But People fail to see that every single day, unfortunately. I think it's easier, though, in business, right? I think it's easier for you as 
the head of Echelon Front and, and the other businesses that you run to say, I'm going to take ownership for these things. I think it's, it's harder from a political standpoint, right? I think there's a lot of different factors that, that play into it if you're an elected official and saying, I've got to take ownership. Like I look at somebody like, I look at all the, the, the array and string of politicians and somebody who I have massive respect for and actually is, um, they, they, they continually pair the two of you together for a, a great running team is Tulsi Gabbard. Mm. Now, Tulsi takes accountability. She takes ownership. Um, I've seen her do it. And it's put her, it's made her wildly popular to level-headed Americans that just want good people running their country. But for her, politically trying to run for president, it was like, you're out of here, like that quickly, right? And so you look at it from, from, from that standpoint, and you're like, can anybody that is literally just a good person who wants to lead, that knows how to lead, penetrate this system and actually get through for, you know, our country to actually have real leadership? Are you asking me that question right now? I'm asking you that question. Uh, it, it's going to be very, very difficult yeah. because, you, you know, the, the, the thing that would be challenging is you would have to play the game to some level to get in that situation where you could actually get elected. So Tulsi didn't play the game. And, and that's part of why, you know, we love her. That's part of why I love her. I think she's great because she didn't play the game. She didn't like Hillary Clinton and she went against Hillary Clinton. She didn't play the game. Everyone else was like, oh, yep, it's going to be Clinton. Cool. We're all on board with Hillary Clinton. And Tulsi went against her and supported, supported Bernie Sanders. And they hated, they, she, so she went against the, the, the pack and they held that against her to this day. And so, you, you know, what could she have played the game better? Now, maybe her principles won't allow her to do that, which we all respect. And, but can we get to a point where the political machine can be, can be penetrated by someone that's not going to play the game? I don't know. Right now, no, that's proven. Tulsi is, is proof that it doesn't work because Tulsi's as good of a candidate as you could ever want. She's a veteran. She's totally squared away. Um, she has experience in government. Like she's a great candidate. She's an articulate, very articulate, um, very level-headed. And, and so if she can't do it, well, then how is you know, who is going to be able to do it? I can't think of someone that would be able to do it easier than her. And, um, you know, so, so we'll see now, you know, who did kind of do it is Donald Trump. Donald Trump was an outsider and the establishment hated him. Um, but, you know, I would say he had a, a big name. He had money and he did, was able to bring supporters. And, you know, some people pointed that out to me. Um, you know, I was saying that no one, no one has ever been hated by the establishment more than Tulsi. And then someone pointed out to me, yeah, actually Donald Trump was hated by the establishment yeah. more than Tulsi, or at least as much as Tulsi. So they're both outsiders. Neither one of them played the game. Donald Trump was able to pull it off. I think it might be easier to pull off for a conservative person than for a liberal person, because I think it seems like the Democratic Party is more authoritarian in how they, how they operate.
So, you know, you gotta have we'll a lot see. of money though, right? You need yes, a lot, you, you need a lot of money. So, yep. so you know, there, there, you hear. Um, I mean, I was listening to your podcast with Rogan the other day, and he's like, "Oh, when are you running? When are you, you know, when are you going to run?" And and you laugh it off, and I've heard it brought up before, and you kind of laugh it off. But I mean, do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about stepping into the arena? I really hope I never have to do anything like that. It's the same answer I give every time. I really do. I really do not want to do that. I don't like politics, everything that we're talking about. I don't like playing the game. And I know I'd have to play the game in order to make, make progress. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just not something that I, <laughs> I don't think I have the stomach for it. Yeah. And I'm just not, I just don't like that kind of stuff. You know, if things, when, you know, I always say if things got really bad and, you know, when everything is, has been happening for the last couple of years, people are like, is it bad enough yet? Come on, Jocko, is it bad enough yet? <laughs> and, you know, we still have a relatively stable economy. We have, you know, infrastructure in place. We have electricity, you know, I'm talking really bad. Okay. Then I, I might have to do something. Um, but I, I really do hope I never have to do anything like that. I don't want to do it. It's not, my scene. I, I don't like it. I don't like politicians. Uh, I don't like political stuff. So hopefully I don't have to. <laughs> Crap. I hope, I hope you don't run because if you say it has to be really bad and this isn't really bad, I don't want to know what really bad is. So uh, I hope you never get to that place where you say, okay, now it's time. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the other thing I think about with, with you and, and I've had the, the, the honor and privilege of coming on your podcast. You had my dad on your podcast first when my dad came out with his book. And, you know, and I've, I've gotten to know you through our mutual friends, uh, Leif and Jenna. And, you know, I feel like I, I know who Jocko is um, deeper than just a, a social media follower or podcast follower, right? Um, but I, for some people, you're a little too much. And, um, I heard you talking on Rogan's podcast and you were saying, uh, after you did his first podcast, he told you, don't, don't look at the comments. So what did you do? You grabbed a cup of coffee, sat down with your daughter and went through the comments because you were like, now I got to know what the comments say. Right. And you were like, I'm unaffected by it. Of course, my daughter was, uh, my daughter was totally affected by it. And, and I totally get that concept because when I've talked about doing different things, my my daughter will be like, no, no, I don't want anybody. Yeah, no, no, I don't want anybody to say anything bad about you. Don't do that. Da, 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 you know, so, you know, the, the, the love for a parent, but you're like, listen, I don't care what people say. And that struck me because I, I'll tell you, I do care what people say. Like I'm a person that like for every, and, and it's something I've struggled with um, for every 50 people that may write something positive about something I post. If one person puts something, it makes me rethink everything. I'm like, well, wait a minute. And, and, you know, it was, it's actually our, our, my COO at the Travis Manning foundation said to me, Ryan, you are never, you know, and I do it even with staff surveys for, we, we survey our staff every year and we'll have like 95% approval rating for like that people love, love the job at TMF. They love what they're doing. And then they will be like 1%. So basically like one person is dissatisfied with TMF and, and, and we'll say like dissatisfied with TMF and its leadership. And I'm like, it makes me rethink everything I'm doing. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, 
how how are you letting this affect you? You're not looking at the 95%. And I'm like, for me, I'm like, I, I want everybody to be happy. I want everybody to feel the way I feel about the work that we do. I want everybody to understand when I'm putting something out that it's meant, you know, in a good way. And it's, it was interesting for me, for you to say like, listen, I don't, I don't really care what people say. Like, and, and, and I wondered, you know, are you really that, is there anything that does affect you that, that when people say something or is there, is, is it a certain level of a person? Like if you hear somebody at a, where you're like, I, I kind of respect that person and crap, they just said something that, that not good about me. Like, yeah, well, so, I mean, Joe Rogan was specifically talking about YouTube comments. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, people are going to, People are going to say crazy things about you on YouTube. People are going to say crazy things about you on social media. You know, you can, you can jump in and look at who's saying something about you and see what type of person they are. Um, for the most part. So, so if someone is just, you know, just talking smack just to get a rise out of me or, or, you know, whatever that really, that truly does not affect me. Like I literally don't care. And I laugh at them. And, and even my daughter, like, she was like, Oh my God, but she wasn't that she wasn't freaking out or anything. Right. Um, so, so that stuff. Now, if I were to see a bunch of people that were writing like, Hey Jocko, your viewpoint on that is messed up. And I might think, okay, well, what is my viewpoint? Just like being a leader, you know, when I'm a leadership position and I, you know, have a vision about something and someone on my team says, Hey, I'm not sure we should do it that way. I say, well, you know, what do you think? And I listen to them. So there's a huge difference between <laughs> bot bot posts on right. YouTube and, and opening your ears to listen to areas that you might not have a good perspective on. And so I think it's really important to actually listen to other people. And if people make an articulate statement to me about some viewpoint that I have, that might be that might be wrong. And, and by the way, I think I'm wrong about all kinds of stuff. I know I can't see things. I know I don't see things the way other people see them. I know I have, you know, blind spots and gaps in my vision about certain subjects. So I have no problem with admitting that I'm wrong. And it's also something that I very rarely will say that I'm right 100% on this particular subject. There's almost no subject that I'll say that about. There's almost no subject that I'll tell you, hey, I am 100% right about this and there's no gray area. There's, there's almost no subjects that I would bring up or that anyone could ask me about that I would give an answer like that. And, and that probably is why I don't get a bunch of people um, you know, trying to come at me because I'm talking, I, I, don't, I don't come out and make claims that are black and white. Yeah. I, I talk about you know my perspective and and always leave things open for other people's perspectives. You know, from my perspective, it looks like this. And I usually talk about the other perspective that I'm concerned that I don't see. I normally will admit that I don't see a certain other perspective. So I think it's I'm, I mean, again, there's a huge difference between social media. And I think I guess basically, I probably have a decent um, mental filter at this point of who's making a legitimate concerned well comment. I'll, I'll bring up a i'll bring up an example and it was something and and i'm not talking about you know the the bots or joe mm -hmm. rogan thinks everything's a russian troll that's you know posting negative but like so 
there is uh, a there is a um, Instagram page called Killzone. I don't know if you're familiar with Killzone, and run by a Marine. I actually had him on my podcast, um, and he wrote the foreword for War Is a Racket. And you did a breakdown, I guess, of War Is a Racket on one of your podcasts, and he vehemently disagreed with your assessment of war as a racket. And he went on and I'll send it to you. And he went on and I really respect this guy. He, you know, he was an instructor at the Naval Academy. Uh, he's a major in the Marine Corps up at the Naval War College now. Um, and he did, you know, 40 minutes going through your podcast and disputing every kind of assessment you made on war as a racket. And, you know, and he, he tagged you in it. So I feel okay saying it. I went back to make sure like he, he publicly tagged you. So I was like, okay, he's okay. He was looking for Jocko to kind of, and it was, and it wasn't done in a bad way, but I, it was interesting for me to see, you know, his assessment of something. And then, and I wondered, I'm like, has Jocko seen this, right? Has Jocko seen this breakdown from someone that I know that you would have tremendous respect for? that you would love to hear his thoughts and opinions on something. And so something like that, um, but he had somebody, he had somebody with him where he was kind of going back and forth um, and kind of breaking everything down. And, you know, it was something like that where when I'm not, when I'm talking about social media, I'm not talking about the like, I, I, and I was going on and, you know, just, just to, just to mess with you. And I'm like, um, hold on. I pulled up a, I pulled up. So he did this really great assessment of, his thoughts on war as a racket, what you said, what, what he said. And, um, but then I go to read the comments and I'm like, okay, let me, um, you know, and people are like, oh, what episode was the Jocko cover war as a racket? I haven't listened to that yet. I respect you both. I love to hear both sides of the opinion. And then it went to, you know, Jocko, like many seals, is this a dude selling bullshit, you know? And I'm, and so, you know, and it goes down to this wildfire. And I'm like, God, I would love for these two to connect because, um, and I love that you said, like, I, listen, I, I like to hear other people's opinions. So I think you probably appreciate listening to his assessment of it. But yeah. something like that, like I always think about like where you get to that point where it doesn't matter what people are saying and, and you know, you have to kind of be steadfast. And it's one thing to say, like you say, I'm always going to be open. I'm never going to say I'm absolutely right. But sometimes, you know, in business, I know at, at, at the Travis Manning Foundation, sometimes I have to make decisions and people may not be on board with it, but I have to be confident enough to say, this, this is how we're moving forward. And I'll listen to everybody. I will, I will take a, uh, opinions. I will take assessments, but ultimately I have to make the decision, right? Ultimately you have to make the decision. And, you know, I, I, I wonder where's the line there? Where's the line there that you have to say, like, listen, this is how it's going to be. This is how we move forward. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and even with, with Tom, so with, um, with Killzone, Tom Schumann, you know, listening to him, like, how do you come to a place? And, and again, I'm, I'm catching you in a place where you haven't even heard what he had to say, but I would love for you to listen to his take on things. And then, you know, we can't do it now because you're not going to, um, but I'd love to know kind of how you take that and how you digest that as an individual. Yeah. So um, I, I, I 
curious to listen to, to his uh, viewpoint. And I'm sure there's a bunch of things that I'm wrong on or that he has, you know, better research of or understands more than me. And, and I'm sure I could learn a lot. Um, you know, anybody that's, that has dove into that book to that level, there's, there's definitely some things that I got wrong. So I think that's one of the key points is, you know, especially from a leadership perspective, having an open mind as opposed to an authoritarian mind is, is very important. In fact, that's one of the most important characteristics and it's tied right up there with humility, which I talk about a lot. Well, if you think about an authoritarian mindset, that's the opposite of someone that's humble. That's someone that doesn't listen. So, you know, the, for me, the opposite of humility, sure it's arrogance, but it's, it also rolls very quickly into an authoritarian mindset, which, you know, I don't really have. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I would, uh, always be open to hearing other people's interpretations. And like I said, I can absolutely be wrong. I'm no authority on, on general Butler, you know, Smedley, but I'm no authority on him. I don't, I, you know, I, I probably researched that book for a few hours before going and doing a podcast on it. If you've got someone that, you know, is in the Marine Corps taught at the Naval Academy, there's no doubt he should be much more well-versed than I am. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's all good with me as far as decision-making in any company, whether it's, you know, Echelon Front or Origin or Jocko Fuel or any of the companies that I have, most of the time, I don't have to make any decisions because my team is executing on the vision more than on, you know, day-to-day instructions or decisions. Do I occasionally have to make a decision? Occasionally, but it's very rare. And when it is, it's usually by the time I'm making the decision, everyone is already on board and we're going in that direction anyways. So if I'm making a decision that I'm getting a bunch of resistance from my team, there's something, there's something either wrong with my decision or there's something wrong with the way I'm communicating with my team where they can actually understand what's happening and why I'm making this decision. So I'm probably going to spend some more time educating myself about what they know and educating them about what I know so that we can get aligned because, you know, in my companies, right? What are we trying to do? We're trying to, well, at Echelon Front, we're trying to teach the lessons that we learned to as many people as we can. We're trying to take care of the people that are on our team and we're trying to make money. And it's actually every single person on the team is aligned with those goals. So if I'm talking to Leif and I'm saying, Leif, no, we need to charge this client more and do less for them. And he might say, well, hey, Jocko, you know, they can't afford it. So they're not going to hire us. And aren't we trying to get this information out there? You know what? You're right. So we're aligned. And when you're aligned inside your organization, it's very easy to to get everyone on, on board and all the decisions make sense. And I always found that in the military as well. I mean, in the military, we want to execute our mission. We want to take care of, we want to take care of our guys, keep them safe. We want to get the job done. Who's going to go, who's going to come up with a plan that is going to get a bunch of people unnecessarily hurt and people on the team are going to be down, you know, okay with that decision. That doesn't happen right now. Could it be that I tell my team, Hey, this is, this is how we're going to execute this mission. And they say, no, we shouldn't do it that way. And I say, why not? And they say, well, we've got intel that there's a bunch of bad guys over on this, this, you know, uh, adjacent village, and we're going to get into a big gunfight. Oh, 
Okay, cool. Thank you for telling me that. Now that I know that, we can make a different decision. So as long as we're aligned, decision-making is, is usually pretty easy in a, in a business environment for sure. And even in the military, I found the same thing. Again, for me, it has most to do with making sure you have an open mind about, about the topics that you're discussing. Do you think that you learned most of these principles in the military? Yes. I mean, I just by the fact that I spent my entire adult life in the military. So, and by the time I retired from the military, all these, I'm not talking about anything different than I was talking about when I was in the SEAL teams. So yes, I learned all this stuff inside the SEAL teams by watching lead. And I know, by the way, I never went to any leadership course of any kind. The, the SEAL teams from the, the way my the way my career went, I was an enlisted guy. There was no leadership training. By the time I transitioned to an officer, there was no leadership training for the level of enlisted guy that I was. And there still wasn't, there still wasn't until a few years ago inside the SEAL teams. Then I became an officer, no leadership training, and never had any leadership training of any kind. So all the leadership principles that I talk about, I either learned bits and pieces from various people that actually said something to me, but that was very minimal. Most, it was, most of it was from watching good leaders and emulating them and watching bad leaders and trying to not do what they, what they were saying or what they were doing. I have come to find that I think you can learn more about leadership from bad leaders than good ones. Um, it's been my experience over my professional career um, because it just, it just gives you a blueprint of what not to do. And I'm sure in the military, you know, there are good leaders and there are, there are bad leaders. Yeah. I had some, uh, absolutely terrible leaders in my career and I learned a ton from them. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it's, you learn more, but you can at least learn an equivalent amount. I think maybe you can learn, you, you learn more about what not to do, but that's a broad spectrum. So it might seem like you're learning more, but to actually learn what to do is harder. So, so you might learn less, but they're more valuable lessons. Right. That's what I would say. I learned a lot from bad leaders, but the most valuable lessons I learned, though smaller in number, they were, they were much more valuable to me. I, I, there's one thing that I really, um, I love about the way that you carry yourself and, you know, your brand and you, you do, you have a brand and you have a, a great brand and, you know, with echelon front, I, my husband was, uh, came to your very first muster. Leif gave him a ticket to come to your first ever muster and, and he still talks about it, you know? And, and so I love what you do at echelon front. We actually have Jamie coming in. Um, and she will be giving uh, uh, a uh, presentation on ownership to the staff at Travis Mannion Foundation. Awesome. So excited for that. But Echelon Front, Jocko Fuel, um, you know, the, the way that you have branded that around um, first responders and, you know, and Wawa, I'm a Philly girl. So like that, that whole thing, origin, you know, you, you, you've got a great brand, but I also lo love how you stay very true to your background and, you know, and who, who you were before Echelon Front, origin, J 
Jocko, uh, Jocko Fuel. And, you know, you talk about your time in the military, but one of the things that you lean on heavily is making sure that you continually honor um, your fallen brothers. And it's not just a Memorial Day thing for you. It's not just a passing. Like, people really feel that. I feel that. I feel the the sense of brotherhood and, um, you know, as, as the sister of a, a fallen Marine, there's nothing that gives me more comfort than knowing that the guys that he served with, you know, still care, are still thinking about him. And that means more than anything. And so it, it, this isn't a question, but just more of like a thank you because, um, you know, you do such a tremendous job of making sure that, that, the seals that you served with that gave their lives, that their stories are learned, that their stories are told. And um, there's nothing more that families of the fallen want than for us to know that our, our loved ones' stories continue, their names are shared. And, you know, with your platform to be able to do that for some tremendous seals, um, I thank you for that. It means a lot. Well, it's, it's an honor to be able to share their stories. It was an honor to know those guys. And, and it's an honor every time I get to share their stories. So I, I appreciate it. And then I'm going to, I'm going to do that forever. Um, you know, I had a guy on my podcast, uh, Colonel Tom Fife, who was, he was in World War II Korea and Vietnam, and he got a purple heart in each one of those, each one of those wars. And, uh, we, he was on the podcast and we talked about, you know, World War II. We talked about Korea. We were talking about Vietnam. It's a long podcast. And this was a couple of years ago. But when we started talking about Vietnam, we started, you know, he was a battalion commander in Vietnam. And when he was a battalion commander in Vietnam, we were talking about what types of missions they were doing and what, you know, what area of operations they were in and what kind of tactics they were using. And then I just was asking him what kind of casualties he suffered. And here it was probably 50 years or 55 years after he had left Vietnam and he started getting choked up talking about the guys that he lost. And I remember thinking to myself, I remember thinking to myself, okay, so this is the way it's always going to be for me. And that's okay. And I've told many, I've told many of my veteran friends that story because it, the emotions they 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 will always be there and they can come back at any time um but i think you know understanding that that's part of what we that's part of that's part of the burden and it's part of the gift that you get as as a veteran or as someone that's lost someone that's that's part of the burden it's part of the gift it's it's heavy to carry but it's 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 a gift that you got the opportunity to to serve with these guys and know them. So it's an honor for me to, to tell that story, to tell their stories as much as I can. Well, thank you again. Thank you for that. It, it, um, I love when I see people learning, um, their stories through you. So, um, you know, continue to use your platform for that because it's awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about resilience because this podcast is called The Resilient Life. And, and so, you know, I'd love to know what role resilience factors in to the kind of leader you are, both in and out of your home. You know, is, is that a word that, that you focus on? Is that, is that something that plays into your identity, resilience? 
it's not a word that I really focus on very much. And I'm trying to think of why, because I know it's a popular word. And I know that there's a lot of talk about resiliency and, but it's never been, it's never, I don't think it's in any of, I don't think the word resilience is in any of my books. I'll have to do a word search at some point, but you know, I've written like a bunch of books, kids books, um, adult books. And I don't think the word, I don't think I use it. Now I'm not saying that I shouldn't have, maybe there's a place where it fit in there. Maybe I used a different term to describe it, but it's not a word that I use a lot. I think one of the reasons that I don't use it a lot is because I've never really thought about it very much. And I think one of the reasons that I've never really thought about it very much is because I think I probably have a decent amount of natural resilience. And, and so therefore, it's almost like something that I don't think about a lot because it's always kind of there for me. And so I, I, I think I, I don't focus on it enough and I probably should focus, focus on it more. I also think that whenever I work with people, we all kind of get that vibe going where we're not, you know, we're not, we're not letting things pull us down. We're not focused on what happened yesterday. And, you know, it's obviously you, you, you have to learn some of that being in the military, you know, you lose guys, guys get wounded, guys get killed. You can't, you almost can't not be resilient. You've got to go. You got to continue on. You've got to carry on your mission. You've got to continue to do operations. So resiliency was just like part of the part of life in the SEAL teams for sure. Um, so I would say I probably don't focus on it enough. And it's obviously it's a great quality. Uh, well, well, as I'm sitting here thinking about it again, because I don't talk about it a lot. I think probably one of the reasons why I am, you know, decently resilient is because I am not, not because I'm stronger or mentally tougher, but I think it's more because I don't have a lot of ups or downs. So when something goes well, I, I don't, highly celebrate it. When something goes poorly, I don't focus on it. And part of this comes from something I do talk about a lot in my books, which is the ability to be able to detach, to take a step back, to detach from your emotions a little bit, to detach from the chaos and the mayhem, take a step back, look around, do a good assessment of what's actually happening and carry on. So that's what I think. I probably, you know, again, being in the military and, and even as a kid, I remember, I just, I learned at a certain point that getting overly angry, getting overly happy, getting overly sad, none of those things were going to be beneficial. And listen, just to be clear, I'm not talking about totally detaching from your emotions. I'm not talking about turning it into a robot. I'm not talking about burying your emotions either. I'm not talking about detaching and saying, oh, well, we're just going to carry on with the mission. No, believe me, I've cried more than anybody. Well, I can't say that. I've cried many, many, many hours and hours and hours and hours and days. And so it's not, I'm not saying don't, you know, just don't do to bury your emotions, but to detach from your emotions, to take a step back and say, okay, this is what happened. This is what I'm dealing with. This is how I need to move forward. I think that's a healthy thing. I think that's 
those things that I just talked about, probably the fact that I don't get super excited. Um, you know, I was, I was hunting this year and I, and I shot a bull elk, which is, I actually got, I killed two bull elk and you know, the, the first one I shot, you know, the, the guide was telling the story to my friend, uh, later on. And he says, yeah, Jocko got the shot. It was awesome. I looked over at Jocko. And I said, heck yeah, that was awesome. And Jocko looked at me and said, cool. You know? <laughs> and then uh, the other ones actually on video, you know, you could see my friend that I was with was totally pumped and he's a great guy. And he was totally stoked. And he looks at me and I was like, you know, I had a smile on my face, but you know, even the goods aren't that, you know, I, I try and, I try and keep my emotions, um, or I, I don't even try and keep them that way. My emotions through time, I've recognized that that hyper emotions in either direction are probably not that good. And, and I think that is good. And I think detaching is good somewhat. And I think that probably has helped me to be a, a fairly resilient person. Why do you think that, I mean, for me, I want to feel that, that, I, I mean, I guess it's just the way I want, uh, things to run through, you know, my body, but like, I want to feel that, that high of being, you know, happy. I, I get this idea of detachment and, and, and you say like, when you're talking about it, you're like, detach, you just keep going. Well, when I ask people about being resilient, what does it mean to be resilient? The first answer you get is like, just put one put, foot in front of the other. So it's the same concept. You're maybe just saying it a little bit differently, but why not experience the joy in a bigger way? Like, what is, what is that, what is that taking away from you? Or what is that doing to help you to not feel that high and to be like, hell yeah, I just killed that bull oak, you know, like why, why not feel that way? Why don't you want to feel that? It's not even that I don't want to. I think I just, I think I know that it's better to be a little bit more, you know, moderated a little bit more modulated and not get overexcited, especially because, you know, all glory is fleeting, you know, all glory is fleeting. You do something great today. Um, and, you know, I, I was actually my, my first deployment to Iraq. We, my, my platoon did a series of operations in a very short period of time. It was like, I think we did four, I think we did four operations in like a 24 hour period. And at that time, you know, this was early in the war. It was like 2003, no one had much combat experience. Missions were, everyone was still like super excited about missions. And my commanding officer had just showed up in country and he was a great guy. I was friends with him. And, and so we did, we conducted these operations. We caught these bad guys. You know, it was like, we caught like a bad guy. Then we got, went and got his friend. And then we got his gut friend and we just kind of caught a bunch of bad guys, whatever. And my boss came down and he was super excited, you know, and he like shook my hand and said, Hey, that was like just a outstanding work for you to be able to turn and burn on so many targets, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Hey, sir, give me 24 hours. I'm sure we'll screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I guess it's, it, it's kind of like you were saying earlier, you know, when you read something negative, you're like, Oh, what can I fix? Well, when something positive happens, I think, Hey, okay, cool. But, you know, let's be careful about getting overconfident or cocky about what's going good. I, I, I think I'm probably a little bit hyper cautious about being excited about when things go good, because I know how quickly the tide can turn and you can have things going great one minute and then a minute later, um, 
you know, things can be going in a completely opposite direction. So again, I, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, I don't know very much about resiliency. I could be wrong about this. You know, what you're saying makes me feel bad because you're like, Hey, shouldn't you be happy and excited, <laughs> happy and excited and stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, that does sound good, but <laughs> it's just, I don't, I don't have it in me too. Well, like, you are. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm suppressing it. Right. Like, okay. you know, my daughter, when my daughter made it to, uh, when my daughter made it to States in wrestling, you know, even then I was, that was, I'm trying to think of like, when I was super happy, I was, I was happy, but even then I was like, I was happy, but I wasn't like getting crazy or anything like that. Um, you know, I don't know. I guess I, I guess it's probably good to, in my opinion, I think that if you have really high highs, you're probably going to have low lows. That that's my opinion. And people that I've known in my life that have really high highs often have really low lows. So all I can tell you is what my perspective is. I don't have really high highs and I don't have really low lows. So I think that is, that is why I'm don't think about resiliency a lot because I don't need a lot of it because my lows aren't that bad. If something really bad happens to me, I look around and I go, okay, well, this is how we're going to fix it. This is how we're going to solve the problem. Fair enough. You, and you, I, you just threw a big butt at me as I was talking. No, Go ahead. Well, well, and, and then you said right after, cause I, you were just like, I don't have high highs and I don't have low lows. And I'm like, okay, well, like when, you know, I didn't look at this word resiliency, frankly, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to give you any example of how I was resilient as a person until after my brother was killed in Iraq. So that was my lowest of low. Right. And then it kind of went. So, you know, I, I understand that life is ebbs and flows, right? It's, it's hills and valleys. And so it's kind of accepting that. So, but I'm okay with, I want to give myself that feeling of the highs, you know, even if it's going to make me feel more with the lows, you know, and that's just who I am. Right. And so, and, but I, I do, I appreciate what you're saying. I don't think I could operate in that world, but I appreciate it. Um, well, I, I think what a, a really nice lesson here for everybody is what you and I are saying, and there's a really important, there's a really important um, similarity between what you and I are both saying, and that is there's, there's lows and there's highs. And I think that's where people get stuck sometimes is they get, they get something bad happens and they lose sight of the fact that it's secular. And things are going to go back up again. Now, I, I, I've talked about depression with people. And it, I don't think I've ever, I, I don't have depression. I don't feel that way. I feel like fine. But when I've known people that, have, that are depressed, the way I describe it is like their head is in a storm cloud. And that storm cloud, everywhere they look, there's, there's darkness. And what they don't see is like us from the outside. We can see that there's light all around them they just can't see it yet. And so I think it's uh, what you and I are both saying right now. And I don't think either one of us is necessarily wrong. I think the important lesson is that if you're in a low spot in life, if you've been knocked down, hang on, because you will come back up again. And it, look, it can get dark, and it can get bad. And it may seem like it's just never going to end, but it, it is going to end. 
yeah. life is secular and you'll get out of that darkness and you'll come into a better place. And I think that's regardless of how high your highs are and how lows your lows are as a personality or a temperament. I think both ways are fine. As long as you remember that things are going to be okay. Yeah. I, I talk about that a little bit in my book about this idea of failure. And, you know, if you, if you come to recognize that failures, which every single one of us will fail, um, if you recognize that after failures and after failure can come success, failure doesn't seem as bad, right? It, it doesn't seem as crushing. It doesn't seem as defeating. And, you know, you talk about it like you don't get that job. That's, you know, you failed at that. Well, if you turn your mindset to say, okay, what am I going to do to get the, the next job, right? Like, and you look forward as, as opposed to sitting in that. And that's, that for me is resilience, right? It's saying like, I'm not going to allow this moment right here to, divide, to fi- define me in a place where I'm not going to hit that next hill, where I'm not going to go up in a, in a trajectory. And so, um, you know, I am, I am not an expert in uh, resilience from, a, um, from a, a scholarly perspective. My resilience, I talk about resilience and just what it means to me. Resilience means like getting your ass up and keep going no matter how bad it is, no matter how crappy or shitty you are at, in your life at that certain moment, you know, and, and I am somebody that's dealt with anxiety. I don't think I've dealt with depression, but I've dealt with massive anxiety, like crippling anxiety where I couldn't leave my house after my mom died, after my brother was killed. I was like, that's it. It's me and my dad. My, my, my nuclear family has been cut in half. Like the, I, I you don't move forward from here, right? And I let my head get into that place where I couldn't get in my car at some points and drive more than 10 miles down the road or I would start to like have the worst panic attacks ever. And people will talk to me about, I stopped flying. I stopped getting on flights. Um, if you would ask me to come on your podcast, I would have been like, sorry, I can't do it. You know, and I would have made up some excuse. Um, but I, there was no way I was getting on a flight to San Diego. And that was probably about a year. And people are like, well, what happened? What was the change that happened? What, what, you know, was it a combination of this medication and, and this sort of therapy for me, it was me telling myself, you're not going to allow yourself to live like that. And it was this idea of like, and I guess, again, I didn't re- recognize it at the time, but me just dis- being disciplined enough to say, I don't care if I know I'm willingly going to give myself a panic attack when I jump in this car or they're like, how did you get over your fear of flying? I'm like, I flew more. Like I literally flew more. I was like, okay, I'm going to go fly. And I know I'm going to have anxiety on this flight, but I have to do it. And it just got better and better and better. And so like, how do you, how do you overcome stuff? You just keep going. You just keep doing it. And so that for me is like what resiliency is about. Um, it's probably not the academic descriptor of resilience, but that's, that's for me, like, that's what living a resilient life is all about. And so, you know, I think, again, you probably live a resilient life and by just like, yeah, well, that's what I do. Like, I don't let my highs get too high. Don't get my lows get too low. And, you know, you just keep going. Um, but, you know, I think it's important for people to know that like, that is no matter what that's, that's the differentiator, one foot in front of the other, no matter where you are on that bell curve of being in that dark place or being in that really high place. Yep. Yeah. So last question for you. Um, 
question I, I uh, end all of our uh, all of our episodes with, and just in thirty seconds or or couple sentences, what does it mean? What what can these viewers do? do to say, I'm going to live a resilient life? What does living a resilient life? I know we just talked about it for 15 minutes, but like real succinctly, what is living a resilient life? Yeah, I think um, when people ask me this question, like they kind of want me to wrap things up or <laughs> say concisely, like what my beliefs are in life and, and it applies to everything. And it's like, it's pretty easy for me to answer because uh, the books that I've written, are just lay this stuff out, right? So you want to be resilient, take ownership of what's going on, extreme ownership of what's going on in your life. The next book I wrote was called Discipline Equals Freedom. So be disciplined. Don't don't count on them. Don't count on uh, motivation. Be disciplined in what you do. I wrote a book called The Dichotomy of Leadership with Leif. And that book is about being balanced and you have to be balanced. You know, when I talk about no super highs and no super lows, for me, that's part of being balanced. Uh, so those three things, you know, be balanced, be balanced in your life, have discipline, take ownership of what's going on. And I believe you will be a very resilient person and you'll be able to keep going on no matter what. Love it. Jocko, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving us your time today. And again, appreciate all you do for the Travis Mannion Foundation community. I know I've told you that many times, but you know, it means a lot, um, you know, we've got a community of over 150,000 Spartans across the country and um, veterans want to hear from you. Uh, they want to hear your perspective, not just veterans. I mean, well, I, I'm sitting here looking at Sean and, and every time you say something, he's going, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's, Thanks, a, Sean. he's a huge fan. He's a huge fan. So, uh, but people want to hear from you because you give it straight and, um, and you bring a perspective that is just like cut and dry. Like here it is. You know, and I think that's important. Well, I, I really appreciate what you all are doing. And I, I just specifically, I really appreciate what you guys, what you all are doing to try and help younger kids. You know, um, I know I did like a video for you guys, but I know I'm not the only one. And I'm sure there's ones that were a lot better than mine, but the videos that you all do to, to show to kids that are in school and, and teach them about service, about sacrifice, about, you know, honor, courage, commitment, it's just, it's just awesome that people are trying to have an influence over kids because, you know, that's, you can have such an impact on, on their lives, f f on everything that they do. So I appreciate that you're trying to get to the source. You know, I, I've written a bunch of kids books and the feedback I get from kids is just awesome, but it's just such a positive thing that you all are doing. I know you do, do a bunch of other stuff too. So thank you for continuing to share Travis's story and thank you for everything you're doing for the veteran community and for the country at large. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Jocko, that video is the video. It is the video that, uh, for our character does matter program. So we have thousands of veterans that are trained to, to go out and deliver character education and they show that video. And, awesome. and I was laughing too, because when you were talking about, you know, your time in Iraq and how you caught a bunch of guys and you're like, ah, oh, we'll fail tomorrow. You have a line in there. And it always, I, I look around at the teachers when you say it and everybody kind of chuckles, but you say, you know, leadership is about this. And then you go, you know, when I was in Iraq, you know, we went and we got the bad guys. And then after we got the bad guys, we went and we killed their friends. And, you know, th this'll be in a room of like sixth graders. And I'm always like, I'm always kind of like bite my lip, like, mm. but I look around and I'm like, people get it. It's like, yeah, that's what you do. You go do your job, you know? And I think uh, for us 
at the, our, the Travis Manning Foundation, there's no greater mission than for us to make sure that we are uh, make, playing a part in building the next generation of leaders. And there's no greater population to do that than our men and women who have worn our nation's uniform. Um, so thank you for lending uh, your time and talent to a video that has been shown to over half a million kids across the country. We appreciate it. And we appreciate awesome. you. Jocko, thanks for joining us. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends.